Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for your goodness and thanks for your word. A lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord. You're so good to us. You give us this instruction and these examples through history. And Lord, we're, we're very grateful. And so we want to hear from you, Lord. So please have your way with us. Guide us and lead us now by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you would, turn to Jeremiah chapter 40. Uh, Lord willing, I'll tell you this, we're going to read chapters 40 through 43 today. That would be four chapters if you can do that math. And I'd tell you what I, why I tell you that at the outset. Usually I've tried this at home. You know, if I do, um, if I make some kind of announcement, or if I'm going to say something that I think might cause, um, to use a medical term, an adverse reaction, um, uh, I think sometimes if I just say it at the outset, right, then everybody just says, oh, okay, sure. And so that's what I'm telling you now. We're going to read four chapters today. And you'll say, Right, that's how that works. So, um, so Jeremiah chapter forty, starting, uh, we're gonna we basically turn the turn the tide here a little bit today. And so, again, big picture down to uh, the focus point that we're on today. Big picture in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right, everything was good for two whole chapters. Right, and then in chapter three of Genesis, uh, sin came into the world, and God's been uh, working to uh, fix the sin problem ever since then. And He's going to fix the sin problem. We know through Scripture, ultimately through um, uh, the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as a part of that, what we see is the history of his family, his people, the people of Jesus Christ, the Jewish people handed down throughout history. And along the way, we see, uh, number one, the history of those people and how God deals with those people and some examples and things we can learn from positively and negatively accordingly. And we also see the character of God through that. And so we find ourselves uh, at this point in the history of the Jewish people, really at a very uh, critical and yet sad time in their history. And that is, um, uh, you know, they, as we've learned on Wednesday nights, they were slaves in Egypt. They were brought, uh, they were into the, brought out of Egypt and uh, they wandered in the desert for 40 years because of their sin and their rebellion. And then God brought them into the promised land. They settled into the promised land. And after they got into the promised land, there was the time of the judges that we'll learn about on Wednesday night. And then there was the time of the kings. And the first king was named... Are you serious? First king was Saul, right? And the last king was, the last king of the nation of Judah was Zedekiah. And so, um, anyway, this last king, Zedekiah, during his reign, the Babylonians came in and they uh, destroyed Jerusalem, the capital city of Judah, and they have taken captives off to Babylon. And we find ourselves uh, having read about that destruction of Jerusalem last week. And so today we enter basically a new chapter, if you will, 40, uh, of the book of Jeremiah. And it's the new chapter that kind of ushers, now, now we're going to be talking about sort of the nation of Judah, the city of Jerusalem, after its destruction by the Babylonians. Everybody got that? Big picture down to small picture? Focal point? Chapter 40? Verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuchadnezzar, 
Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah when he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah who were carried away captive to Babylon. So we see Ramah is this place. Um, uh, it's about five miles north of Jerusalem. It was sort of a holding place for captives. You got a picture, you know, there's, there's a remnant left there in Jerusalem. Jerusalem's really the last stronghold to be conquered by the Babylonians. There's that remnant there in Jerusalem. They're going to destroy and, and basically burn the city, right? Well, they've got to carry the prisoners somewhere. And so they're going to they're basically hold the prisoners in this place, Ramah, which is about five miles north of Jerusalem. And so um, Jeremiah would have been one of those uh, prisoners because he happened to be there at the time. Verse 2, and the captain of the... I'm going to read this like... Let me just back up too. I told you that I'm going to read four chapters today. This sort of... You know, sometimes we'll read a verse and talk about it. Another verse, we'll talk about it. Another verse, we'll talk about it. Um, this, there's, some, there's some, I think, some critical lessons for us to glean from these chapters. But in order to kind of do that, it reads a little more like a narrative today. Is that fair? So I might do a few verses and we'll just see how this rolls. Uh, and the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord your God has pronounced this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said. Because you, you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. And so Nebuzaradan, the Babylonian, keeper of the, uh, the commander of the army, is telling Jeremiah what God has done to Jeremiah's people because of the sin of Jeremiah's people. Don't you hate getting a spiritual lecture from a pagan? Right? That's embarrassing, right? And so Jeremiah just kind of takes it. But, you know, there's a few examples of this throughout Scripture. In the interest of time, we won't go through all of them. But, you know, it's kind of funny when you see... Um, you know, I think, well, I'll tell you one. Abraham goes down to uh, Egypt, right, uh, because there's a famine. Abraham's kind of walking in his flesh a little bit. He's, he's afraid and blah, 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 blah. He gets to Egypt and he says to his uh, beautiful wife, Sarah, he says, hey, let's tell them that you're my sister so they won't get weird and, you know, take you into their harem and all that kind of stuff. And anyway, it's all said and done. Abraham's getting a, sort of a lecture from Pharaoh. You just don't want to do that. And so um, anyway... Jeremiah's getting a lecture from Nebuzaradan and the pagan, and he's putting up with it pretty well. And now look, he says, I free you this day from the chains that were on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you. But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. See all the land is before you, wherever it seems good and convenient to go, for you to go, go there. Now this is very important. Can I just asterisk Asterix, this, this is very important. All these years, Jeremiah by now has been warning the people of, of Judah for 40 years. Count them, 40 years. Warning them, telling them, you know, because if you guys sin, the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to conquer us. You know, you need to repent because the Babylonians are going to come and they're going to conquer us. And then, every, you know, there'd be false prophets that say, Jeremiah's, you know, full of hot air. And Jeremiah's like, all right, I'm just telling you. And then they put him in prison and, you know, they sink him in mud and they try to do all this other kind of stuff. And he's like, I'm telling you, you know, Babylonians are going to come. They're going to conquer Jerusalem. And one of the things that they accuse, and, and along the way, Jeremiah says, if we will just submit to them, 
We won't have to go through all the fire and all the punishment and all the famine and everything else if we will just submit to the fact that God is going to bring the Babylonians to conquer us. If we would just surrender to the Babylonians, God will give us peace. And they were always saying, no, you're going to defect to the Babylonians. You're, you're just a sellout. You're, you're, you know, you're, not doing very, you're not doing a whole lot for our military morale to fight against the Babylonians when you suggest that we give, you know, give ourselves up to them and, and all this kind of stuff. And here now Jeremiah finds his, himself in a place where he could totally say, I told you so. I mean, 40 years of being not listened to, right, now is like the ultimate opportunity to say, I told you so. We don't see that. Furthermore, word has, you know, gotten over to Babylon that this guy, Jeremiah, he's been warning that we're coming. He's kind of, you know, Jeremiah is not exactly a threat to the Babylonians, right? And now the general of the Babylonian army, Babylon being uh, probably the most prosperous nation in the world, now, the general tells Jeremiah, tell you what, if you want to go back and just kind of have a chilled retirement in Babylon, the most prosperous nation in the world, the king of the most prosperous nation in the capital city of the most prosperous nation, he'd be more than happy to take care of you for the rest of your life. Pretty good retirement plan, right? If you want that, Come with me. No chains, no nothing, just wine and dine and chill with the king till the rest of your life, right? Now, if you're Jeremiah, you've been rejected by your own people. You've been thrown in prison. You've been thrown in mud. You've been mocked. You've been ridiculed. You've been everything else by your own people. Now everything you've said has come true. Honestly, we could read over this and, and kind of miss the, miss the context. I think the context is this is an incredibly enticing offer for Jeremiah to snub his own people and to go off into a chilled retirement in Babylon. So Jeremiah, it would appear, has a pause in his face. And now while Jeremiah had not yet gone back, Nebuzaradan's kind of reading this pause. Tell you what. Go back to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has made governor over the cities of Judah, and dwell with him among the people, or go wherever it seems convenient for you to go. So the captain of the guard gave him rations and a gift and let him go. So, you know, Jerem uh, uh, Nebuzaradan tells Jeremiah, you can come with me to Babylon if you want, and apparently there's a pause in his face, and he says, all right, or you can stay here, right? And this guy, Gedaliah, is the guy, I want you to notice this guy's Gedaliah's name. He's been appointed by the king of Babylon now to be the governor of Jerusalem, of basically, the, basically he's going to govern over this burned out city and, uh, you know, what few people are scattered around and, and gather. So he's going to be there. And he's like, you can hang out here in this burned out wasteland if you want and, you know, work with Gedaliah on some kind of restoration program if you don't want to come to Babylon. And so, um, believe it or not, Jeremiah loves his land, loves his people, despite all their rejection of him. And he declines the sweet retirement deal in Babylon. Amazing. Amazing. This guy, Jeremiah, the more I read about him, the more blown away I am by his faithfulness and his dedication to serve the Lord and the Lord's people. 
So verse 6 goes on, then Jeremiah went to Gedaliah, that would be the governor of the, the new governor of the land, the son of Ahikam to Mizpah, and dwelt with him among the people who were left in the land. So there, was, there would have been a few people left in the land. Mizpah, again, is, a, is another town. It's about seven miles north of Jerusalem. It's going to be the new home base since Jerusalem's been destroyed. And so Mizpah's kind of the, the home base now. is the governor, and Jeremiah is going to kind of be there and help him out. And when all the captains of the armies who were in the fields, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah, the son of Ahakim, governor in the land, and had committed to him men, women, and children in the poorest of the land who had not been carried away captive to Babylon, then they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, Johanan, the son of Jonathan, the sons of Kareah, Sarai, the son of Tehumanath, the sons of Ephi, Topathite, Jezaniah, the son of Mechathite, they and other, their men, right? So here's what I want you to notice. The guys that came to, to Gedaliah were Ishmael, Johanan, and some other guys. Is that fair? That'll help it keep, keep it clear in our minds. Ishmael and Johanan are key players in this, in this narrative, and some other guys. There's always other guys, but for our purposes, we're just going to call them other guys. And so, and, the, and Gedaliah, the son of Hikam, the son of Shaphan, took an oath before them and their men, saying, Do not be afraid, which notice that word afraid, to serve the Chaldeans. And the, again, Chaldeans is an interchangeable term, if you will, for Babylonian. So don't be afraid to serve the Babylonians. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it shall be well with you. As for me, I will indeed dwell at Mizpah and serve the Chaldeans who come to us. But you gather wine and summer fruit and oil, put them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you, may, that you have taken. And so this guy, Gedaliah, the new governor, he's kind of issuing a uh, sort of a, an order of things, if you will. Again, this is sort of post-destruction by Babylon. And all these army captains are gathered. They've, they've, or they've been scattered. Now they're kind of gathering to him. And basically, the question is, you can imagine this, right? Babylon's long, I mean, the king of Babylon's long way off. They've taken off a bunch of prisoners, and they've kind of left us with this, you know, debris, we'll say. Debris geographically, and then, a, you know, a few scattered people here and there that, you know, aren't a threat to anybody. And now we as a group of, of, of remnants have to decide, are we going to kind of regather under the authority, the headship, if you will, of this guy Gedaliah, who uh, the king has appointed? Or are we, are we just going to sort of try to rebel and do our own thing, right? It's a fair question. And Gedaliah, the governor, he's like any good governor, he says, Listen, it's pretty clear that the Babylonians have thumped us. Let's now just submit to them. And as we do that, serve them, it's going to go well with you. And he says to them, gather wine and summer fruit and oil and dwell in the cities that you've taken. You know, in that time, wine, summer fruit, and oil, we're not talking about basic necessities. We're talking about, you know, it's going to be okay for you. You're going to, you're going to, have, you're going to have what you need. And so it's kind of, you know, wine, summer fruit, and oil is kind of a picture of, of prosperity in a way. And he said, you know, if you just kind of um, 
submit to Babylon, then everything's going to be okay. And let me just point out, it should have seemed obvious to them by this point in time. What's been happening for the last 40 years? Jeremiah's been saying the Babylonians are coming, right? What happened? The Babylonians came. Jeremiah said, they're going to burn the city with fire. What happened? They burned the city with fire. And now, here we are trying to decide if we're going to rebel against them or not. It's insane. It's insane. But this guy, Gedaliah, he's trying to gather, uh, gather him accordingly. And verse 11, likewise, when all the Jews who were in Moab among the Ammonites in Edom and who were in all the countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah and that he had set over them Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. Then all the Jews returned out of all the places where they'd been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah, Mizpah, and gathered wine, summer fruit, and abundance. So, you know, you can imagine by this point in time, there have been a lot of Jews that have scattered to the neighboring countries because they were afraid maybe Babylon is going to come. And they, you know, they've just kind of been gathering around and, and now they're kind of sort of coalescing here around this guy Gedaliah. Now, a little subplot. Moreover, Johanan, remember I said you got to remember Ishmael and Johanan, right? And some other guys? Okay. Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah at Mizpah and said to him, Do you certainly know that, the ba- that Baalis, the king of the Ammonites, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to murder you? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. So, we see a warning from this guy, Johanan, that uh, trouble's coming. And this guy, Gedaliah, doesn't seem to heed the warning. Now, let me just tell you this. There's a difference between fear and caution. Does that make sense? There's a difference between fear and caution. We're going to talk a little more about fear uh, throughout our time here this morning. But caution is okay. It doesn't mean I'm fearful if I choose not to uh, touch a hot stove. If I choose to not touch a hot stove, it's because I anticipate what might happen. Or maybe something that's not as obvious as the hot stove. Maybe somebody's going to warn me about something. Now, I don't have to, like, restructure my life and, and, you know, be paranoid and run and try to you know, preserve my own security, but it's okay sometimes to heed a warning, right? To heed a warning and yet not be paranoid. And so we see here, this guy Gedaliah probably could have uh, benefited from heeding this warning, uh, but we don't. So we got a little bit of foreshadowing here. So then Johanan, the son of Korea, spoke secretly to Gedaliah in Mezpah. So he said, first, this guy Johanan warns Gedaliah, Ishmael's going to kill you. He's been sent here by the king of the Ammonites. Gedaliah says, eh, I don't think so. Johanan says, all right, tell you what, let me go, please. And I'll kill Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. And, so, and no one will know it. Why should he murder you so that all the Jews who are gathered to you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah perish? But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, the son of Korea, you shall not do this thing, for you speak falsely concerning Ishmael. So, Again, it's probably not necessarily a wise thing for Johanan to offer this solution to kill Ishmael, but so they go back and forth a little bit. 
chapter 41. Now it came to pass, what do you think is going to happen in chapter 41? You're going to find out, okay. Uh, this guy Ishmael, we've been warned about him, right? I said the word foreshadowing, which in itself is kind of a foreshadowing, right? See the mystery unfold? Isn't this incredible? It's like, it's better than eighth grade literature class. I just got to tell you. Now it came to pass in the seventh month that Ishmael, oh wow, he showed back up on the narrative. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, and of the officers of the king, came with ten men, because these kind of people always bring thugs with them, to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, at Mizpah. And there they ate bread together at Mizpah. Then Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the ten men who were with him, arose and struck Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, and killed him whom the king of Babylon had made governor over the land, Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him, that is, with Gedaliah in Mizpah, and the Chaldeans who were found there, the men of war. So this is honestly, this is a horrific act. This isn't just like any ordinary murder. This is a horrific murder. This is a murder of this guy, uh, Gedaliah, who's trying to restore order under the authority, what appears uh, of the events that the Lord has brought to pass. He does it, you know, in the ancient world, hospitality was a huge thing. It's like, you know, you remember when the, when the, when the angels came to Abraham's house, all of a sudden, you know, Abraham says, hey, Sarah, hurry up and, you know, kill the calf. We got ser- to serve these people. When anybody, you know, when anybody would come to your home, it's almost like you were socially obligated to bring them into your home. And by so doing, they were socially obligated to be gracious. And so here, these guys, get, uh, Ishmael and his thug buddies, they come in and they literally eat, let Gedaliah serve them. And then after they're all good and full, they kill him and kill everybody that was with him. It's really uh, very premeditated, very underhanded. Uh, But the truth of the matter is, Gedaliah probably should have been more cautious. So verse 4, it happened on the second day after he killed Gedaliah, when as yet no one knew it, that certain men came from Shechem, from Shiloh, and from Samaria. These would have been areas up in the northern kingdom of Israel. Eighty men with their beards shaved. So they heard that, hey, you know, things are happening down in Jerusalem, in Judah. You know, okay, Babylon came and, and wiped everybody out, but they appointed a governor, and they're trying to, you know, restore some uh, remnant of order down there. We're going to go down there. We're going to kind of worship the Lord a little bit. And so um, these guys, 80 men, they had their, their beards shaved, their clothes torn, would have been kind of a sign of humility, um, maybe repentance, maybe they're going to offer some uh, to the Lord. And having cut themselves, I want you to notice this, that was sort of a similar thing except pagan. And what's the whole point, the whole problem we've been talking about for 40 chapters is this mix of worship of the Lord and pagan idolatry so much that they're, they're like confused. Hey, we're going to worship the Lord. We're going to bring, you know, we're going to tear our clothes. We're going to shave our beards. We're going to cut ourselves and we're going to make all the gods happy, right? And so they're coming. Anyway, they're coming down to town, down to uh, the area here. And uh, with offerings and incense in their hand to bring them to the house of the Lord. They're going to bring offerings to the house of the Lord. Now, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, this creep guy that we just read about, he went out from Mizpah to meet these guys, weeping as he went along. And it happened as he met them, at the, as he said to them, come to Gedaliah, the son of Ahakam. And so it was when they came into the midst of the city that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, killed them 
and cast them into the midst of the pit, he and the men who were with him. So, uh, this, so Ishmael kind of deceives these guys. Oh, you got to come to town and, you know, get Elias uh, here and, and all that. And they, he basically ushers them in and then, they, then he kills them all. But ten men were found among those eighty who said to Ishmael, Do not kill us, for we have treasures of wheat, barley, oil, and honey in the field. So he desisted and did not kill them among their brethren. So he was, he's bribable, right? And uh, again, they were able to bargain with him with some, some goods. Now the pit into which Ishmael had cast the, all the dead bodies of the men whom he had slain because of Gedaliah was the same one Asa, the king, of, the king had made for fear of Baasha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. Then Ishmael carried away captive all the rest of the people who were in Mizpah, the king's daughters, and all the people who remained in Mizpah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had committed to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. And Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, carried them away captive, departed to go over to the Ammonites. And so this guy, Ishmael, he kills Gedaliah. He kills these other guys that came down from the northern kingdom. Um, he throws them all in a pit. Uh, we got some historical reference that this is the same pit that Asa uh, had, had dug. And then uh, he takes a bunch of people off uh, to, to go uh, captive into Ammonite territory. But when Johanan, the son of, remember I told you there were two guys I want you to remember? Ishmael and Johanan. Remember Johanan, so far, Johanan warned, the, warned Gedaliah, the governor, hey, this guy Ishmael thinks he's going to kill you. He says, no, he's not. He says, tell you what, let me kill him instead, proactively. He's like, no, don't do that. And so now Ishmael has killed Gedaliah, and what's Johanan going to say? So you see these subplots? This guy Johanan, he's now, he's now ready, game on, right? What's another thing that everybody might be thinking now? What's Nebuchadnezzar going to do when he hears about all this? If you're like Joe Citizen in Jerusalem, leftover a remnant, maybe you were one of the poor people that they didn't carry off to Babylon and they left you there with this burned out city and this guy Gedaliah to try to restore some sense of sort of own, some sense of order as a, a Babylonian sort of vassal state, right? And now some local thug people have killed your governor, and now you're Nebuchadnezzar. What do you, what's Nebuchadnezzar going to think? He's going to think, man, those people, they just don't get it. I think the easiest thing, way to deal with them is just kill every last one of them. And so if you're Joe Citizen now in the area, what emotion do you have? Fear. Fear. You're fearful because of all the unrest in the area, and you're fearful as to what Nebuchadnezzar might do now. Again, and by the way, you know what he's capable of doing because he just did it in chapter 39, right? So you see this whole thing kind of play out. And in the midst of this, verse 11, when Johanan, the son of Kerea, and all the captains of the forces that were with him heard of all the evil that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had done, they took all the men and went to fight with Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah. And they found him by the great pool that is in Gibeon. So they're going to get Ishmael. So it was when all the people who were with Ishmael that saw Johanan, the son of Kerea, and all the captains of the forces who were with him, that they were glad. Then all the people whom Ishmael had carried away captive from Mizpah turned around and came back and went to Johanan. So Ishmael carried off a bunch of captives, and now they've turned against him and to join Johanan. But Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, 
escaped from Johanan with eight men and went to the Ammonites. Remember, Ishmael was sent from the Ammonites to kill Gedaliah. Now he escapes back to the Ammonites. Then Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces that were with him, took from Mizpah all the rest of the people whom he had recovered from Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, after he had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the mighty men of war, and women and children, and the eunuchs, whom they had brought back from Gibeon, and they departed from and dwelt in the habitation of Shimham, which is near Bethlehem, as they went on their way to Egypt. Right? And so, you know, we see this thing, Johanan is going to rally a group of soldiers, he's going to get Ishmael, but Ishmael flees to the Ammonites, and then they all settle in this area by, by Bethlehem. And then verse 18, I want you to see this. Because of the Chaldeans, for they were, what's that word? Afraid of them, because Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, had murdered Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, whom the king of Babylon had made governor in the land. And so, what we've got now, the Gedaliah, the governor, has been murdered. Johanan, another guy, is going to try to kill the murderer, but the murderer flees, and now everybody who's left around, they're afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? That's the, that's the subplot of these two chapters, which brings really the lesson of chapters 42 and 43. Everybody good so far? Everybody say, boy, I hope he doesn't stop there. Right? Right? I hope he doesn't stop there. Please, please don't. Okay, okay, I will. Now, all the captains of the forces, Johanan, the son of Korea, Jezaniah, the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near and said to Jeremiah, the prophet, now we're talking, right? Now, we're, now we got a little wisdom going on. They said, please let our petition be acceptable to you and pray for us to the Lord our God for all this remnant since we are left but a few, a few of many as you can see that the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the things we should do. And then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard, indeed I'll pray to the Lord your God according to your words, and it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare it to you. I will keep nothing back from you. So they said to Jeremiah, let the Lord be a true and faithful witness between us. If we do not do according to everything which the Lord your God sends us by you, whether it is pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the Lord our God, to whom we send you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the Lord our God. So, chapters 40 and 41, let me just point out, there's not a whole lot of mention of God. Notice that? There's like this guy trying to fight this guy, and it's such a picture of our world, right? You take God out of the equation, you just got a bunch of people fighting each other, right? You know, you got pro-lifers and pro-choicers, you got Republicans and Democrats, you got, you know, whatever your version of good guys and bad guys, and everybody's got a perception, and everybody's fighting, if you take God out of the equation, right? And so that's what we see in chapters 40 and 41, just a bunch of infighting. Everybody's trying to see, you know, the guy that kills the most people wins. And I'm afraid of the next guy that might kill me in revenge for what I did to him, and it just goes on forever. In chapter 42, we see these guys come around, the remnant that's left, and they say, hey, hey, Jeremiah, would you please pray for us and give us wisdom as to what God will do? And Jeremiah rightly answers and says, yes, I will pray, and I'll tell you, I'll do you even better. I'll tell you exactly what the Lord says. 
right? And we know from the last 40 years, Jeremiah's going to do that whether it's popular or not. Jeremiah's going to do that whether it's popular or not. And we need to be people that are able to do that whether it's popular or not, right? Whether it makes people feel good about themselves or not. We need to speak the truth in love, but we need to be people who can speak the truth. And Jeremiah is certainly that guy. So this all seems sincere, but let me just tell you this. Don't ever ask the Lord for wisdom if you're not willing to obey it. Don't come to the Lord with a loaded question and say, I'll obey it if you give me the right answer. Right? That's what these guys are doing. And it happened, verse 7, after 10 days that the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Then he called Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains and the forces which were with him, and all the people from the least even to the greatest, and said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition before him. If you will remain in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I I relent concerning the disaster that I have brought upon you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon. See that word afraid? Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon. We read there in chapter 41, verse 18, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans, of the Babylonians. Now Jeremiah is calling it for what it is. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Do not be afraid of him, says the Lord. For I am with you to save you and to deliver you from, the, from his hand. And I will show you mercy, that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. And so this is very, very important. So Jeremiah, God gives Jeremiah an answer. Jeremiah gives these guys the, the, the message. And the message is, stay here in Jerusalem. Stay here in the land of Judah. Don't be afraid of the Babylonians. Don't be afraid of Nebuchadnezzar. God's going to take care of you. Isn't that what God's been saying all along to these people? And have they listened for the last 40 years? No. No. Isn't that what God says to us? Don't be afraid. I'll take care of you. What did God say to Joshua? We heard this on Wednesday night. What did God say to Joshua in those first couple of chapters? Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Even a guy like Joshua, who, you know, he's a rock star in the, in, the, in the biblical history, right? Joshua's a rock star, to be sure. He needed to be told, be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. So could it be that we need to be told that? Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid. You know, a guy was uh, pointing this out to me on Wednesday night, and I was kind of mulling over it. And, and honestly, we read last week that King Zedekiah was afraid. Chapter 38, verse 19, he was afraid of all the people that had defected to Babylon, Babylon that they were going to come back and kill him. And if you trace back into the, into the history of the kings of Israel, I gave you a little bit of foreshadowing earlier. Who's the first, who's the first king of Israel? Saul. Remember when Saul was told by Samuel, hey, I want you to go wipe out the Amalekites. Remember that? I want you to wipe out every, I want no breath remaining of human or animal from the Amalekites. Is that clear? That's clear. That's what you call clarity. The order given to, to Saul by Samuel was clarity. 
And Saul sort of obeys. He sort of takes some of the best, you know, he does a little, little obedience, thinking that's good and all this. And he's going to save some of the best uh, animals for sacrifice. And Samuel comes and he says, what, what are you doing? And Saul says, what does Saul say to Samuel? Chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 24, he says, I was afraid of the people. Interestingly, this guy was pointing out to me, first king of Israel was motivated by fear. Last king of Israel was motivated by fear. It didn't go well for either one of them. It didn't go well for either one of them. And as I was kind of mulling this over, I think, you know, the, uh, the, uh, Proverbs 29, verse 25 says, the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man brings a snare. And I think, of, as I was kind of thinking through, maybe the Lord, you know, kind of mulling this over my head again, I think of the fear of man as kind of like a rudder on a ship. Now, James tells us that the human tongue is like a rudder on a ship, right? The little rudder moves a big ship, right? Well, you could take the, the metaphor, you know, in a different way. And the rudder, I think of the rudder as, do you see the rudder? It's underwater, right? And I think the thing that's underwater drives the direction of the ship. Does that make sense? Drives the direction of the ship. You know, if the fear of man brings a snare, if we live our lives fearful of, oh, what this person might think or how this might work out with that person. And again, you know, like uh, Gedaliah probably should have used a little caution in his life. I'm not saying be foolish. Sometimes there's caution. But I think if we're motivated primarily by fear, that fear will drive that ship wherever fear takes it. And it's usually no place good, right? The Word of God is what needs to drive our ship. The Word of God is what needs to drive our ship. And here's a, here's a classic example of guys that were clearly afraid of the king of Babylon for good reason, right? He's capable of burning the city, taking captive whoever he wants, killing whoever he wants, gouging out the eyes of whoever he wants, and leaving a remnant of whoever he wants. He's capable of all of that. He's now probably a little extra honked off that, oh, by the way, our people killed his governor. We've got good reason to be afraid of the king of Babylon. And yet, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, whose words have been confirmed to be true for the last 40 years, says, stay put. Stay put. Just hang out here. Don't be afraid of Babylon. Don't be afraid of the king of Babylon. Just stay put and chill. And I am with you, God says, to save you and to deliver you from his hand. And I will show you mercy that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. That was the promise to these guys. When they genuinely, they, they seem to genuinely ask a question, hey, what does the Lord want for us? Because we're kind of afraid. And the Lord says, you know, stay put. Don't be afraid of the king of Babylon. And we know from Proverbs and elsewhere, the fear of man brings a snare. We know that bad things happen when you're motivated primarily by fear. But if you say, verse 13, we will not dwell in this land, disobeying the voice of the Lord your God, saying no, but we will go to the land of Egypt. That's a new word, right? We're going to go to the land of Egypt, where we will see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, nor be hungry for bread, and there we will dwell. Mm, mm, that sounds good, doesn't it? No war, bread, 
No trumpet? And we're just going to dwell there and hang out. Remember what I said at the beginning? What was offered to Jeremiah? That kind of stuff, right? Peace and prosperity. Pie in the sky till you die. Good retirement plan and benefits. Right? Being fed by the king. The king would probably be passing grapes in Jeremiah's mouth, right? That was the offer, right? Jeremiah turned it down because of his commitment to the Lord and to his people. Now you got the tables turned. The people here have asked, what does God want us to do? Jeremiah says, sit tight, obey the Lord, stay here, and the Lord will take care of you. And they're going to say, nope, we're going to bail out to Egypt because Egypt is a safe haven. You think Egypt's a safe haven? No. I love what you heard me talk, I think, last week about Damien Kyle, who I love to listen to. He always says, uh, um, he always says, the safest place in the world is in the midst of God's will. So if God tells you to go somewhere that the world would say is dangerous, but but that's where God has you, then that's the safest place for you. For these guys, the safest place in the world was in Judah. But they thought the safer place was Egypt. Egypt is a picture. uh, We've heard about this again on Wednesday nights. Throughout the Bible, Egypt is a picture of the temptation to return there after the challenges of this life that we face. Right? Right? What do you see when the, when the Israelites went out to, you know, just picture this. This is amazing. Ten plagues. Like, at the end of that tenth plague, I don't think there's any question that God is God. Right? No questions that. No, everybody's, we're pretty clear on that, right? God is God. Right? Well, in case you weren't sure, we'll just part the Red Sea and then dump the sea back on all the uh, Pharaoh and all of his armies. Right? Now, is everybody sure? God is God. God's going to take care of us. Takes us across the Red Sea, right? I mean, you've got to love the story, really, of human nature. You know, they get, you know, 12 or 13 steps across the Red Sea, right? They get thirsty, right? Like, are you kidding me? You just took out, you know, the 10 plagues. You crossed the Red Sea. You dumped the water back on Pharaoh's army. You literally got the got the picture of watching Egyptian soldiers wash up on shore. Twelve steps later, you're thirsty? Seriously? And you start in, right? Oh, man, everything was so awesome back in Egypt. We had, we had leeks and whatever a leek is, right? We had, we had great food and everything was awesome back in Egypt, right? This is human nature. Unless we make too much fun of them, which we should, let's look, let's look at ourselves, right? I think of myself. And honestly, it's humbling. I think of, what, I think of all the Red Seas God has brought me through. And then I think relatively of when I get thirsty, how I react, right? It's not altogether different than the Israelites. But the point being, we see throughout the Scripture, 
Egypt is a picture of that desire to go back. To go back to, you know, everything was cool when I was drinking beer in college. Right? Boy, that's when, you know, everything's working out great for me. <laughs> yeah, well, probably not, but that's, you know, that's how we act. Right? And so these guys are like, we're going back to Egypt. Egypt is a picture of the world and what the world has to offer, and it's such a classic temptation. Peter, Apostle Peter, denies Jesus three times, right? The night before he's crucified, he's super discouraged, he's dejected. You know, his Savior of the world got killed. And he hears, you know, different reports that maybe he's risen from the dead and and I love the picture there because I know that we tend to do this. John chapter 21, right? John chapter 21, Peter's standing around. He says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going fishing. That's Egypt. I'm going fishing. Because Jesus told Peter when he called him, he said, you will no longer go fishing, but you're going to be what? Fishers of men, right? Your fishing days are over, Right? But Peter gets discouraged, and what does he say? I'm going fishing. It's kind of like, what else is there to do? I'm going fishing. Let me encourage us. We all have those desert times. We all have those discouraging times. We all have those times when we feel like we're thirsty. And there's always going to be a temptation to go back to whatever we think is comfortable, whatever we think is familiar, whatever we think the world can offer us, whatever we think will be uh, right in our own eyes. All of those things are temptations. That's our Egypt. And so these guys, they want to go back to Egypt. They said, no, we'll go back to Egypt and we're going to not see war. We're going to not be afraid of the trumpet, and we're not going to be hungry for bread, and there we will dwell. Then hear now the word of the Lord, Jeremiah says, O remnant of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, if you wholly set your faces to enter Egypt and go and dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. The famine of which you were afraid shall follow close after you there in Egypt, and there you shall die. So it'll be with all the men who set their faces to go to Egypt to dwell there. They shall die there by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence, and none of them shall remain or escape from the disaster that I will bring upon them. If the Lord tells you don't go to Egypt, then Egypt is not a safe place to be, period. If the Lord tells you don't go to Egypt, be careful. Be careful what your emotions tell you. Be careful what your fear tells you. Be careful of all of that. And these people are sinful and unrepentant, and that's what got them in this position in the first place. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as my anger and my fury have been poured out on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so will my fury be poured out on you when you enter Egypt. And you shall be an oath, an astonishment, a curse, and a reproach, and you shall see this place no more. Doesn't it sound like deja vu? That's what he said about Jerusalem. Now he's saying the same thing about Egypt. The Lord has said concerning you, O remnant of Judah, do not go to Egypt. Has God been clear about what he wants them not to do? Yeah, right. Don't go to Egypt. Know certainly that I have admonished you this day, for you were hypocrites in your hearts when you sent me. Now he's calling them out. I like this. 
You were hypocrites in your heart when you sent me to the Lord your God, saying, pray for us to the Lord our God, and according to all that the Lord your, our, your God says, so declare to us and we will do it. And I have said, as I have this day declared it to you, but you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord your God or anything which he has sent you by me. Now therefore know certainly that you shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence in the place where you desire to go and dwell. And so Jeremiah calls him out. He's, he, can, he's, he knows their thoughts. Uh, this is a this is by the power of the Holy Spirit. He's he tells him, I know you're you're thinking about going to Egypt, and you came and you told me you would you know please pray for me and all that pretense and all that kind of stuff. And Jeremiah sees right through it. In verse chapter forty three, we see in, see the end of this. Now it happened when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all the people all the words of the Lord their God for which the Lord their God had sent to him to them. All those words that Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the proud men, if you're an underliner, underline that word, all the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, you speak falsely. The Lord our God has not sent you to say, do not go to Egypt to dwell there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, has sent you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may put us to death or carry us away captive to Babylon. So just those verses right there. Please notice, these guys all gather to reject the word of Jeremiah. And keep in mind, Jeremiah has accurately prophesied for the last 40 years. And now all of a sudden he's wrong. Right? He has very accurately, very specifically prophesied for 40 years to this rebellious people. And now all of a sudden he's wrong. They said, pray for us. What should we do? He says, stay here, dwell in the land, don't go to Egypt. And they say, no, but I think Baruch set you up and uh, we're going there. But notice also the root of this problem. What's the root of this problem? What kind of men were these? Proud men. Proud men. Proud men. Pride is thinking that you have a better idea than God does. Pride is thinking you have a better plan than God. Now you say, oh, I'd never do that. Right? You think of it like, like in my mind, I think, maybe I think like Jonah, right? God says, hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, sure, wink, wink. I'm going the opposite direction to the other end of the earth, right? That's Jonah, right? We'd say, yeah, Jonah was a proud man, right? But maybe it's a little more subtle. Maybe God says, I want you to take that little step of faith and you say, I don't think so. I, I don't, God, I'm sorry, I just don't see it that way. I, I think I'm going to go my own way. Because Proverbs tells me the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. And so I think that's the way I should go. Right? Pride is thinking we know a better way than God does. Thinking, God, I think your way is not really fun. I think your way is kind of scary. I don't think your way is the way that I'll be truly satisfied. I think I'll be most satisfied if I do it my way. Have we ever done that? Do we struggle with that all the time? Yeah, I think we do. Verse 4, so what do you think they did? Moment guess. 
They went to Egypt. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces and all the people who would not obey the voice of the Lord to, to remain in the land of Judah, but Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces took all the remnant of Judah who had returned to dwell in the land of Judah from all the nations where they had been driven. Remember, they all gathered from all over because we're going to kind of restore the order here under Gedaliah. Now they're all there. And all of them, they took all these people from all the nations where they've been driven, men, women, children, the king's daughters. So they even took a hospital with them, right? The king's daughters. Every person whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, and Jeremiah. They took also Jeremiah, the prophet, and Baruch, the son of Neriah. And so they went to the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And they went as far as Tephanes. Isn't that incredible? Get your head around that. Get your head around. God has warned his people for 40 years, repent or else the Babylonians are coming. You have watched. Now, when we get done, I'm, I'm going to warn you now. When we get done with the book of Jeremiah, we're going we're gonna to read Lamentations. Because Lamentations is kind of like a postscript on the, on the book of, of Jeremiah. And you're going to see how utterly horrible the conditions were in Jerusalem at that time. These people that we're talking about today have lived through that. They, they got all the warning for 40 years. They rejected it, rejected it, rejected it because of their pride. No, we've got a better way. No, we've got a better way. No, we've got a better way. Sure, sure enough, God's way comes in. And then there's sort of this political jockeying after uh, the Babylonians take over. And now the remnant that's left after even that comes to Jeremiah and says, hey, what should we do? And Jeremiah says, tell you what, God's given you another chance to live in a way that he'll take care of you. Just stay here. And hang out. And they say, nope, we're going to be driven by our emotions. We're going to be driven by our greed. We're going to be driven by our flesh. We're out of here. And we're taking everybody to Egypt. It's such a picture of the human nature. It's such a picture of the danger of the sinful human heart that's not surrendered to God and to his word. And it's a warning for us today, I believe. So these guys take everyone to, to Egypt, and they take Jeremiah. It would appear they take Jeremiah and Baruch by force, because Jeremiah clearly didn't want to go. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Tapheni, so he's in, in Egypt, saying, Take large stones in your hand, hide them in the sight of the men of Judah, in the clay of, in the brick courtyard, which is at the entrance to Pharaoh's house in Tapheni, and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and bring Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal pavilion over them. When he comes, he shall strike the land of Egypt and deliver to death those appointed for death, and to captivity those appointed for captivity, and to the sword those appointed for the sword. I will kindle a fire in the houses of the gods of Egypt, and he shall burn them and carry them away captive and he shall carry he shall array himself with the land of Egypt 
as a shepherd puts on his garment, and he shall go out from there in peace. He shall also break the sacred pillars of Beth Shemesh that are in the land of Egypt, and the houses of the gods of the Egyptians he shall burn with fire. So even in Egypt, God is still speaking, God is still warning, and God is still bringing judgment to those that rebel. God tells him he's going to bring Nebuchadnezzar. Sure enough. Was Egypt a safe place? Not at all. Not at all. James 3.16 says, Where envy and self-seeking exist, which is what these guys are all about, there is confusion and every evil thing there. Sometimes chaos is a sign of envy and self-seeking because there's confusion in every evil thing wherever there's uh, envy and self-seeking. So beware of those things. Beware of, uh, beware of people trying to take us to Egypt when things get hard. People trying to encourage us. Maybe, you know, the Ishmaels of our life that want to kind of take us places that we probably should not go. You know, Jesus said, beware of wolves in sheep's clothing. Or beware of false prophets, Right? who come to you in, in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. Inwardly they're ravenous wolves. He says, you'll know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. Right? And just know this. I've got to be honest with you. This one's taken me um, a long time to learn, and I'm still learning it. I'll probably always learn it. I hope. And that is God's ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah tells us that. God's ways are higher than our ways. It sounds, it sounds almost obscene to say it, but God is smarter than I am. God is smarter than I am. God sees a bigger picture than I see. And if God says, go here, I would do well to go here. And specifically, if God says, don't go here, I would do well to not go here. God's ways are higher than our ways. And pride is the thing that causes us to not want to do that. So be careful about those things that, are, that go along with our pride. Be careful of the fear of man. Be careful of our desire to uh, go back to Egypt. Be careful about our, our jaded, blindsided recollection of what life was like in Egypt. Right? Be careful about those things. If we know that God is good, we can know that His desire is to bless us and to take good care of us. That applied to the fall of Jerusalem, and it applies today. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you that you're so good to us. We thank you that you take such good care of us. And we thank you that your will is the best place on earth for us to be. So we thank you for guiding us, for leading us, for nurturing us, for filling us with your Holy Spirit, who guides us into all truth. We thank you for your word. That's been given by your inspiration so that we can be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. We thank you for all of that, Lord. 
We thank you that you've given us all that is needed for life and godliness. And we ask that you would just cause us to surrender to you daily. With each big decision and little decision. With each step we take, Lord, help us to seek you and to follow after you. And we'll give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.